It is my privilege to invite you to today's sermon podcast. I have made the Apostle Paul's prayer request my own. When he states in Ephesians six nineteen, pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, the words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. May today's sermon come alive to you and aid you in your understanding of God's plan for your life. Have you ever heard the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished? This is not uh, the original usage of that term. The original phrase comes from uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, the 13th century priest and philosopher and theologian. If you've taken an introductory to philosophy course at the college level, you've probably read some of his works. The original phrasing uh, comes from his best-known work, the uh, Summa Theologica, and it reads as follows. For as punishment is to the evil act, so is reward to the good act. Now no evil deed is unpunished by God, the just judge. Therefore, no good deed is unrewarded, and so every good deed merits some good. This seems to be, uh, to me, sound thinking. Uh, But the phrase I am concerned with flips it around a little bit. Instead of saying, no evil deed is unpunished, the phrase is changed to, no good deed is unpunished. It is more of an ironic usage of the original. It has its roots in the 20th century. Basically, it is the perspective that sometimes individuals engage in actions of kindness and goodwill only to find that their good deeds backfire on them and they have a negative or detrimental result. Uh, The best of intentions can result in the greatest of calamities. I have uh, experienced this myself uh, in life before, uh, specifically in working here at this church. Uh, If you didn't know, we have uh, quite the fire suppression system in this building. Throughout the building, you can look up and you will see uh, protruding from the ceiling a vast number of sprinklers. We have on site what is called a dry pipe fire sprinkler system. So right now, in all of the sprinklers in the whole building, there is no water in any of the pipes that lead to them. Instead, they are filled with pressurized air. And if you've ever been down the fellowship hall... And you've, or you've been in one of the kids' Sunday school classrooms, you might have heard what sounds like a motor running in one of the rooms. Um, that is the compressor that helps keep all of the dry lines pressurized. Um, so if you hear the air compressor running all the time, usually what that means is that one of the pipes in the ceiling has a hole in it that needs to be fixed. Uh, for that, I keep a document on my phone every time I walk by and I go, oh... 8.28.23 at 3 p.m. The compressor came on, and the more and more I hear it, the more nervous it makes me. The fact that the system, though, is pressurized is very important to this story, so give me a minute to get there. The tricky part, as said about having a dry air system, is that moisture can build up in those pipes. If there's a section of pipe that naturally kind of sits lower in the attic, moisture from the compressed air can pool, and over time, it can wear through the metal pipes. If you have holes in your pipes in your attic, uh, that can be bad news. So one of the ways that the system is designed to prevent this from happening is that there is a drain valve system that helps drain out some of the moisture. This setup is located down the hall in the storage closet in the youth room. Years ago, when I was the youth intern, I was shown this system 
told what it was meant to do, and instructed on how to properly and safely drain the moisture out. Sometime later, I found myself in the storage closet of the youth room, and I said to myself, Self, while you're in here, you should drain that valve out so you can get it taken care of. You're laughing because you know where this is going. So, this is a two-part setup. There is an upper valve and a lower valve. So, before... You can do anything, you have to close the upper valve shut before you open the lower valve and drain out whatever is and then do it back in the reverse. Pretty simple, you would think. Um, But not for me. On one fateful day, uh, when I thought I was doing a good deed, I opened the lower valve without closing the upper valve. Now, when that took place, it set off a chain reaction of calamities. First... All of the pressurized air that was being held in the system was now escaping from the valve that I left open. So that means that all of those lines were empty, but after about 60 seconds, they filled with water. But, praise God, they did not release any water because, thankfully, sprinklers are designed to only come on when fire happens. So we praise God for that. But down on the other end, where the compressor and the main pump is, There is water coming, and it has to go somewhere. And if it's not coming out of the sprinklers, it's got to go somewhere. So there is a spillway in the flower bed on this side of the building. And after that took place, gallons upon gallons of water began pouring out of the spillway into the flower beds and eventually saturating the entire parking lot on that side. At the same time, and by the way, our system works very well, just so you know. At the same time, uh, the system also activates the fire alarms, which means that everybody who was working in the building um, at that time was greeted to the shrill, sharp brutality of the fire alarms and the flashing lights that makes everybody want to get out of the building. It also has this neat feature uh, that automatically calls the fire department, telling them that there is a fire emergency. So after a few minutes, the Homedale Fire Department came by, full gear, sirens blaring, uh, to check out our flooded parking lot. (laughs) And after a few more hours of sirens and loud noises and wet parking lots, the company that services the fire suppression system, they came, drained all the water out of the lines, repressurized the system, and finally everything was back to normal. One thing that nobody above me ever told me was how much it cost to have the fire service company come out on an emergency call like that. Um, But I know for sure what the cost was to ruin the day of the other three people who were in the building supposed to be working uh, while I was, you know, messing around with the fire system. And all of this because I was trying to do a good deed. No good deed goes unpunished. But to be fair, I did it the wrong way. Maybe this isn't Maybe this isn't really a no good deed goes unpunished story, but maybe it's more of a measure twice, cut once kind of story. (laughs) Thankfully, though, uh, the deeds of our God, they are not unaware and haphazard uh, like the deeds of a foolish youth intern. Our sermon title today is Wonderful Deeds and Unfailing Love. And I believe that the deeds of God, his actions of love, are by far superior to that which we are capable of, even on our best days. 
We'll be reading from the 107th Psalm today, starting in verse 1, and I hope to give us a better insight into some of the examples of the wonderful deeds of God and what those deeds tell us about who God is. I also want to look at some examples of His unfailing love and how that love might be characterized through His Word. More than anything, I want to emphasize how we can respond and how we should respond to the wonderful deeds and unfailing love of God. So if you will, please turn to the 107th Psalm. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. I invite you to stand at this time. My reading is from the New International Version. If you don't have that, you'll figure it out, I know. Psalms 107, verses 1 through 9, says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wonderful deeds, for your unfailing love. For your love that endures forever. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and show us who you are and how much you love us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As mentioned before, I've broken down this text into two different themes, the wonderful deeds of God and the unfailing love of God. Let's jump in first to look at the wonderful deeds of God with an emphasis on God's supremacy in all things. You'll see that the title is Wonderful Deeds, the Supremacy of the Triune God. When we look at the Bible, I think a good way to classify the wonderful deeds of God as they are described in the Holy Scriptures is to split them across the Testaments. My perspective first on the Old Testament is that the wonderful deeds of God are commonly associated with His role as Creator and Provider. As Creator, we can read all about his works in the Genesis account. But a good summary of his creative work is depicted in Genesis one thirty one. And I will pre-warn you, normally I would, I would reference and write the scripture in the bulletin for you, but there was just too much of it. So you will have to trust that I had it right on my paper and read it at home later for emphasis. Genesis one thirty one says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The 24th Psalm affirms this notion, found in verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. He is even the amazing artist that created life. Psalms 139.13 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's wombs. We have a creator 
who is very concerned about his creation. The Psalms, they, he, they, Psalms declare that he is an amazing artist. Amazing artist. They also talk about God's provisionary blessing in league with his creative magnificence. Psalm 65, 9 says, You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. I believe that God's wonderful deeds prove him to be a creative genius, a masterful watchman providing for the needs of his creation. Even greater, though, I believe the New Testament takes this one step further, showing that God is a restorer and sustainer. This is shown in so many ways, but never more powerfully than in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One example of this is found in Luke chapter 19, where Jesus goes to visit a wee little man. He invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner, and as a result, Zacchaeus is restored and sustained by Jesus, completely changed in heart and mind and motivation for life. Jesus celebrates the, trans- the transformation in Zacchaeus' life while also proclaiming the greater work of his wonderful deeds. Luke 19, 9 through 10 says this, And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The deeds of God through Jesus Christ are restorative and sustaining, making that which was old or broken new again. The Apostle Paul declares this in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. Wonderfully enough for us, his restorative work continues in us and through us even this day. 1 Peter 5.10 sums up God's restorative work, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Our scripture passage in the Psalms challenges those who have been restored and sustained by the Lord to proclaim it. Psalms 107 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Now, our text here, I, I believe, seems to be alluding to those who have been redeemed by the deeds of the great God of the Old Testament, who delivered his people of Israel from the captivity of their oppressors. But I think even today, we, the redeemed of Jesus Christ, can tell our stories of his wonderful deeds in our own lives. As a young high schooler some 20 or so years ago, maybe longer than that, I don't remember, the Lord did a wonderful deed in my life. He gave me a young college-aged pastor named Benjamin Ellery Barnes. Ben was the worship pastor at the youth group that I attended. Um, As the leader of worship, his primary job was not to preach, but 
he would proclaim the wonderful deeds and unfailing love of God through song and music. Uh, But more than anything, he showed me how to be like Christ in the average, ordinary, everyday motions of life. He set an example to me of the unfailing love of Jesus through living life, through, through navigating the encounters of what Oswald Chambers calls the drudgery of everyday life. Each day was an opportunity to encounter a God that so desperately loves us and wants to be reconciled to us. And you could encounter this God in the most mundane, everyday normalcy of life. It required a different disposition to live in such a way, but Ben set the tone for me in how to do that. His example in relationship with me had a profound influence on the path that my life took as a younger adult, and it continues to have an influence on me to this day. Sometimes God's wonderful deeds are the hands and feet of people he puts us in touch with for the glory of his name and the building of his kingdom. In summary, I believe that God's wonderful deeds show that he is powerfully present in our lives and he is actively working according to his will. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, and and I believe that one of our songs referenced this, and God singing over us. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So how should we appropriately respond to this masterful God who created all things, this mighty warrior who saves, whose wonderful deeds provide, restore, and sustain each one of us. How do we respond to the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection? We respond by choosing to surrender to God, to accept his wonderful deeds, to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. And when we do this, we receive the Holy Spirit. These are the greatest of the wonderful deeds of God for all of humanity. And all who believe that can agree with the opening words from our scripture passage, which says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. The next aspect I would like to look at from this passage is what is described as the unfailing love of God. The unfailing love represented in our scripture declares the sufficiency of the triune God, the one that passionately provides for each one of us. The eighth verse of our passage declares, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. As done previously with God's wonderful deeds, I will attempt to categorize God's unfailing love between the Old and New Testaments. My perspective on the Old Testament is that the unfailing love of God is best described as a love of compassionate care. The unfailing love of God is benevolent. It is filled with kindness and consideration for each one of us. It is filled with 
with affection. The Bible describes God's love as abounding and enduring. Our thesis statement found in 1 Chronicles 16.34 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. When something is important, it bears repeating. I don't know how many times that happens in my life where I end up saying, Hey, um, did I tell you this already? And my wife or whoever I'm with goes, Yeah, you did in fact already tell me that several times today. But when something is important, you're either really forgetful or it bears repeating. The phrase, His love endures forever, is found 43 times in the Old Testament in five different books of the Bible, but none the more prevalent than in the 136th Psalm, where the phrase is written 26 times, one for every verse in that chapter. God's unfailing love is abounding as well. The 103rd Psalm declares the following in verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Again, when something is important, it bears repeating. The phrase abounding in love is found seven times in the Old Testament across six different books spanning timelines from the exodus of Egypt all the way to the work of Jonah in the city of Nineveh. The Old Testament affirms this abounding, enduring, unfailing love. The phrase unfailing love, as it is recorded in our text today, by itself appears 40 times in the Old Testament. Whether it is enduring love, abounding love, or unfailing love, each instance used in the Old Testament is always attributed to God and to no one else. Again, I believe, as it is in our other passage, that the New Testament takes this idea one step further in showing that God's love, his unfailing love, is best described as a love of relentless redemption. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. His goodness is running after, running after me. It's relentless Again, it bears noting that this is shown in so many ways, but never more powerfully than in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One example of this relentless redemption is found in the story of Lazarus. The story of Lazarus' funeral is found in John chapter 11. If you have heard the story, you know that Jesus shows up at the burial site of his friend Lazarus, who had died four days previous. He mourns and he weeps for the death of his friend, but then demands that he come out of the grave. And up from the grave he arose. Maybe not with a mighty triumph for his foes, but Lazarus came back to life after being dead and gone for four days. And it was so bad, they were like, please don't open that tomb up. He's been in there four days. No one knows what it's going to smell like in there. It's in there, it's true. But in the midst of restoring physical life to Lazarus, Jesus affirms his relentless redemption, declaring through the power of his unfailing love that he can restore spiritual life as well. As he comforts Martha, Lazarus' sister, he speaks these words recorded in John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am 
the resurrection, and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asked her. The one who raises the physically dead also raises the spiritually dead. He does that work for us through his unfailing love. Even more so, the, redem- the relentless redemption of God is given generously, more than one can expect or demand. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 states the following, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. God lavished his redemption on us through the unfailing love that was culminated in the cross of Calvary. Romans 5, 8 quite brilliantly depicts the sacrificial aspect of God's unfailing love. Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a love that is filled with reconciliation. The process of making our relationship with God right, sound, restored as it should be. Earlier, we referenced 2 Corinthians 5.17, which declared each believer as a new creation. But 5.18 declares the byproduct of this new work, which is reconciliation. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Not only does God's unfailing love reconcile us unto him through Jesus, but it also confirms and compels and challenges us to take part in the continuing work of relentless redemption, relentless reconciliation. Paul declares that we are ambassadors of God, charged with the daunting task of bringing people into an encounter with Jesus, that he might create something new in them and reconcile them with God. What a great, unfailing love. This unfailing love that reconciles and makes things new also guides and directs us. Back in our main text, Verse 7 of the 107th Psalm says this, He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. God's unfailing, benevolent, affection-filled, reconciling love can do a great work in our lives and in the lives of people we care about. I know this to be true because... That unfailing love did a great work in the life of someone I care about. Um, Someone in my life that I care for deeply, that I looked up to as a younger person. This person did what many people do when they grow up and set out on their own. They see everything the world has to offer and they choose to go their own way. This person's relationship with God went from one that was fostered in a church family to one that became combative. This individual rejected God and was actively looking for other alternatives to fill their life. For years, for years, I prayed that my witness, 
my testimony. That would be part of the puzzle that turned their life back around. But things got so far off that I began to believe that if this person was ever going to find their way back to the Lord, it would not be because I was the one that led them there. Have you ever been part of a scenario, as a parent you've probably had this scenario happen, uh, where you say something to someone over and over and over and over again, and they don't seem to catch it. But then somebody else comes along, and they say the exact same thing, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that makes sense now. That's what I've been saying the whole time. I feel that that was what was going to happen with this individual in their life. That was the scenario I envisioned. So I began to pray a different prayer for them. Not that my testimony would be the one that converted them, but that my testimony would still be worthy. That it would be worthy of the, of the compulsion of God in my life. But I also began to pray that God would put new people in this individual's sphere of influence. That would begin to show them once again the great love of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. And I praise God for those times, for my cherished prodigal, who did find their way back to Jesus, not because of anything directly that I did, but because of God's unfailing love that put others in their life that were able to show them Jesus in a way that I was not equipped to. God's unfailing love shows that he is invested in our lives and he desires to bring all humanity to reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says this, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Amen and hallelujah. So how, how should we, how do we respond to this masterful God whose unfailing love changes even the hardest of hearts? We respond by committing to serve God in the great work of pursuing the mission of Jesus Christ. We don't do this on our own as we have an advocate, one that will provide the guidance we need to do the compelling work of reconciliation. The Holy Spirit will be with us to guide and direct our paths, to lead us by the straight way, to do the work that has been laid before us. And it is crucially important that we each set out to exemplify the wonderful deeds of God and follow the call of God's unfailing love. There are some people that my calling will affect and impact, but there are others who will hear and see the good news of Jesus Christ living in me and not be swayed by it or moved by it. But they just might be moved closer to Jesus because of you. When it comes to showing and sharing God's unfailing love and his wonderful deeds, you may have the opportunity to reach people in your sphere of influence that I would never encounter. 
You are among the called. You are the ones God is qualifying to build his kingdom, to execute his great plan of redemption. So I challenge you to heed the call. Pay attention. Do the work that God has laid before you. Ask him for the proper senses to show and experience the world through his perspective. That we might work together as one to do our best to show and share God's unfailing love and his wonderful deeds with a world that so desperately needs it. Before we turn to the last part of our service, the, the celebration of communion, I'd like to give anyone in this room an opportunity to experience the compassionate care and relentless redemption of a loving God who sent His Son to seek and to save that which was lost, and who waits patiently that all might have the opportunity to come to repentance, to ask for forgiveness of their sins and be reconciled with God. If you would like to pray a redemption prayer today, I would gladly lead you in that. It's a simple prayer. It asks God for forgiveness of sins. Ask Jesus to come into your life and to be your Lord and Savior and friend. It is a commitment prayer, commitment to love God, to follow Him, and to share His love with others. You can pray this prayer with me silently or out loud. Either way, you can repeat it after me as we pray. Dear God, thank You for Your wonderful deeds. Thank You for Your unfailing love. Thank You for the love that sent Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin. I'm sorry for the ways I have wronged you. I ask now for forgiveness of my sin and for Jesus to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior and friend, I commit my life and my ways to you, that I might know your love, follow your ways, and show and share your love with others. Thank you again for your unfailing love and wonderful deeds. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you for joining today's sermon podcast. You can find a copy of today's sermon as well as other sermons and the sermon outline from today on our church's website, www.mvcnaz.org. It is my prayer also that you will seek out a church home that recognizes the authority of the Bible.